Well, hey there. Welcome to another edition of What Barry's Talking About from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. On this week's program, the rising cost of groceries. Most fingers point accusingly at the grocery stores, but should they be pointing elsewhere? And how long before we get a break from food inflation? The Barry Colts embark on another playoff run this week. CAA has launched its 20th Worst Roads campaign, but it's not just about potholes and broken roads. We begin a monthly feature with Barry Mayor Alex Nuttall looking at the issues impacting the city and what's being done about them, and a musical fundraiser for RVH returns after a two-year pandemic-induced hiatus. But first, while Fraud Prevention Month is wrapping up, police don't want you to let up in your diligence. Incidents of fraud rise exponentially from year to year, and the money lost is unthinkable. South Simcoe Police Detective Constable Jason Mudo says some frauds are simple, some are elaborate, but we fall for them nonetheless, and the digital world we live in is a huge part of the problem. We have apps, social media. Um, the one thing I've learned from a bunch of presentations that I've uh, listened to the apps and products that we use, a lot of them are free. And essentially they're free because you're, you're the product that marketing, institution, company, whatever, wants your information, right? So as you put information out there, um, where those companies are collecting it and then selling it. So it's a different world because our information is out there, right? And, and we're pretty free with that information, aren't we? Exactly. Even as, as much as shopping uh, online, our Visa card is getting put input into online places daily. So uh, everything we're putting online right now, and that's a problem. That is a huge, huge issue. It's just more accessible to fraudsters. So gone are the days where we go into your, you know, break into your car or break into your house and try to get your identity. We don't even see uh, fraudsters or Thieves don't even need to do that anymore. You just sit at home on your computer and you can find information from your living room. So what do we need to do to protect ourselves? And I know we, we talk all the time, be careful when you're answering the phone. Be, right. You know, Make sure you double check if somebody's mm -hmm. asking you for money. But So there are some people who are, are vulnerable to that kind of thing. Basically, what you want to do is be paranoid. That's the number one thing. Always be paranoid. And number two, very simple, if it's too good to be true, it's likely a fraud. So be paranoid when somebody comes to your door. Be paranoid when you answer the phone. And if somebody's offering, offering you something that just seems too good to be true, it's just too easy to make X amount of dollars out of whatever somebody is pitching to you, or the deal is too good, whether it's a, you know, a, phone, an, a phone or a product that's worth one-tenth of the cost or some sort of investment that has an elaborate uh, percentage of return, um, again, likely a fraud. Not always a fraud, could be legitimate, but it, it very well could be a fraud. What's the, this may be a loaded question, what's the biggest fraud that you deal with on a day-to-day, -day, week week-to-week basis? I would say one of the biggest ones are investment, investment frauds and romance scams. And lately, we've been dealing a lot with the grandparent scams, which I'm sure people are aware of. Those are the bigger ones. The investment scams is just typical random phone call, or even you're going on the internet, Google best GIC rates for 2023, and then you find yourself in some fake website. You put in your information to receive a phone call. Somebody calls you pretending to be a bank or some company that provides GICs, and then with, a, again, a return that is higher than average, and then away they go. You send your money. 
romance scams, very popular. You'd meet somebody online, that person either tells you that they have an issue, they're stuck at the border, they're, they're doing an investment, they'd like you to participate, they want to teach you how to invest in crypto or whatnot, again, going into the either investment route again, or that they're, they need help somewhere, and then they need money, and off that goes. Um, and then the grandparent scam is a big one that we're dealing with now. That's more of the phone calls um, where usually to uh, an older individual and the person would pretend to be a grandchild in trouble um, asking for money right away, again, stuck somewhere, border, whatnot, and they need help. So what's the best advice for a grandparent in that case? As simple as just hang up. That would be the, the simplest answer. I know it's not always easy. They are very creative. Um, they can be very convincing and influential. Um, but I would hang up. And again, just like every other fraud, confirm that whoever's calling you is the person that's calling you. Like call your grandchildren. Call your son or daughter or another member of the family and see if it's legitimate. Just like when somebody comes to the door, right? Door-to-door scam. Somebody who pretends to be Bell or a... Uh, HVAC company, confirm who these people are, and you confirm it. Don't let them confirm it. Somebody can come to the door, and I've dealt with many investigations where, you know, people will listen to the advice we give and be like, okay, I'm going to confirm it, but these people are creative. They'll be like, no problem, and they get their phone, call their friend, and then they pass it on to the person and be like, here, this is Bell, this is Rogers. They will confirm. And like I said, it goes back to being paranoid. Be paranoid. Is it possible to overprotect ourselves? I'm thinking now in terms of security software Mm -hmm. for the Internet, and I'm always getting another nudge from from my provider of that. Say, well, you can step up your security. Oh, you forgot all these threats here, and we Mm -hmm. can help you deal with that. You keep buying and buying or financing that. Can you go too far? Uh, No, not, not really too far because these fraudsters are getting, just as we're getting more advanced technology, so are the fraudsters Um, on a personal level. You obviously know on your computer, have your virus scans um, updated. Um, And also you can purchase through Equifax or TransUnion what's called credit monitoring. That's a good service that even I have. It's between, I believe, $20 to $30 a month. Um, If somebody, if you ever get your identity compromised, what happens is somebody will use your identity at um, some company, let's say a bank or a dealership. As soon as that, for example, bank or dealership do a credit check on supposedly you, you get an immediate notification saying, hey, uh, XYZ company just just did a credit check on you, and then you can look at that and determine whether that was you or not you, and then go from there. And then on a business level, be careful who you hire. That's another another type of fraud, uh, employment fraud. Um, be careful who you hire. Do your background checks. Hire a good bookkeeper. Stay on top of your statements. And then also uh, cybersecurity um, through your insurance company. Insurance companies offer, offer now uh, cybersecurity. Um, they have different packages. So if, if you get a account takeover, uh, hackers take over your whole software of your company, um, just like a car accident, we don't know what to do. It's a lot for one person to handle. You know, a car accident breaks into your house, takes all your stuff. You call your insurance company, they help you through it. It's no different with cybersecurity through your insurance. Um, call your insurance company and they have brokers that will assist with 
getting your company back on track. Like you said, we could sit here till we next can, year we can. going there, through one fraud after another after are, another. There is a variety of them, but again, if you if you are paranoid and if you have the mindset of, that this is too good to be true, there's a problem, um, more than likely you'll, you'll be okay. If you're looking for more information or suspect you've been the victim of a fraud, give police and the Canadian Anti-Fraud Centre a call. After breaking some team records during the regular season, the Barry Colts have their sights set on the ultimate rewards, an OHL championship and a berth in the Memorial Cup. We get a playoff preview from Barry 360's Will Conkin and Colts broadcaster and writer Gene Pereira. Now that the regular season is behind us, looking forward, they'll face up against the sixth-place Hamilton Bulldogs in the first round. Gene, let's uh, dive into this matchup. First game is Thursday at Sadlin. What do the Colts need to do against this team to uh, just set the tone? Well, I, I think they got to come out and, 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 and set a good tone early. I mean, obviously send a message the last time these two teams met back. I think it was March 2nd, Hamilton won 7-5, and... Uh, you know, it wasn't uh, uh, classic, very cold hockey. They played kind of a loose style and uh, sloppy uh, uh, mistakes, and they ended up paying the price. And it just shows that this Hamilton team, uh, which finished two and two against Barry on the season, you know, uh, played well against Barry throughout. Again, and obviously Hamilton's a different team. They're in a rebuild mode. Uh, you know, really unloading, but. Uh, you know, the combination of uh, Nick Lardis and Sahil uh, Panwar, who they picked up from Peterborough at the trade deadline. Uh, Panwar, who's an overager, you know, finishing really strong his junior career. And then you got a guy like Lardis, who's one of the top prospects for the NHL draft this year. Uh, just really kind of set the pace there. They were just absolutely on fire since coming to Peterborough. So they're going to be a handful of two guys that they got to watch. But this Hamilton team that you got to respect. I think Barry's the better team, but uh, again, I think it was an important lesson the Colts learned last time they faced them. The Colts are dealing with some injuries. Uh, do you see that having an impact? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, a couple of key veterans, uh, uh, three veterans out. Uh, uh, Cooper Matthews has missed the last couple of games. Uh, Connor Punnett was injured on Thursday after trying to deal a, a check in Sudbury, uh, and uh, he missed the last couple of games of the year. And as well, um, uh, Tyler Savardi's been out ever since a, a game in North Bay, uh, or sorry, Sudbury, when he took a, a head check. And uh, so, you know, talking to Marty Williamson, he's hopeful that. Uh, uh, they'll be back for the start of the playoffs on Thursday, and he listed them as day-to-day. So, obviously, key figures. Punnett's a, a key defenseman back there, a physical force, who's had really a, a standout, you know, his best year in junior hockey. And, uh, you know, obviously, Savard, again, another big body up front that, uh, you know, a power forward type that can score as well, brings that physical style, makes the Colts harder to play against. So, two physical guys, and then, obviously, Matthews, uh, you know, is a veteran depth winger that has, uh, again, has played really well, was playing really well before uh, he went out of the lineup. And then now the biggest thing, what will these first four games look like? Wow. What will, do you think the Colts will just like go 4-0? What do you think? Yeah, I know, it's going to be tough. You know, I, I think I got this series in five. You know, Hamilton uh, might, might, might steal a game. I think, uh, you know, Fortin's been really solid for Barry and Nett. I think Barry has uh, uh, a much deeper team in this uh, in this case, and 
much more experience than the Hamilton team that's really unloaded here. But again, I think well, Hamilton's going to really rely on that combination of Lardis and Panwar. And for Barry, uh, you know, you really have to kind of shut them down in hopes that you can kind of keep Hamilton in check. And uh, I think you're going to see a, a lot of pairing uh, defensive types against certain players. Uh, you know, uh, you know, if you look at Hamilton with Barry, I think you can certainly expect import Russian Artem Grushnikov on the backhand, who's kind of a physical guy, logs a lot of minutes back there. Uh, he's going to be keeping an eye on probably Cardwell and Veerling in that top line. You expect them out there every shift. And then I think for Barry with Lardis and Panwar, uh, it'll be interesting to see if they go with their top pairing, which has been Hache or Clark, or maybe they even change things up and put, you know, a couple of defensive guys with each other, like a Hache and, uh, you know, a, a Cholash uh, or a Punnett and a Cholash together and uh, assign them that every time that those two, Barnes and Pan are on the ice, you see those two. But that's the fun thing about playoffs is you get to see the teams really kind of, and that's why home ice is so important. You get that last change, uh, um, you know, so you can bring out the guys who you want against the other team's top guys, and I think you'll see a lot of that matching as we go along here in the playoffs. Thanks again, Gene. Really appreciate the insight. Thanks, Will. Fun time of year, and uh, looking forward to it, and uh, get ready. Uh, you know, Colts, pretty good hockey team, and uh, should be able to go on a, a bit of a run here. Potholes, uneven pavement, sidewalks in disrepair. Here's your chance to call them out. CAA has launched its annual Worst Road Survey. Barry 360's Ian McLennan is buckled in with CAA's Teresa DeFelice. When did this uh, program actually start? The CAA Worst Road campaign actually started about 20 years ago uh, in 2003. So we're in our 20th year of highlighting infrastructure and bringing Ontarians along with us on this journey. Now, when, when, when uh, people participate, I mean, the focus is the worst roads campaign, and if you're behind the wheel and you're driving, yes, but the roads belong to everyone. And what I mean, what I say by that is, it's not just the drivers, but uh, you also include uh, pedestrians, the people who use e-scooters and, and cyclists. It's all-encompassing? Absolutely. No matter how you get around this province... Uh, the Worst Roads campaign is for you. We actually ask for people to identify how they get around and what what the reason is that they are nominating or voting on a road. And so uh, last year, I would say the third and biggest reason is lack of cycling infrastructure. And we're seeing pedestrian infrastructure issues come up. So, um, you know, bad roads don't just affect drivers. They affect everybody from buses, uh, two wheels, uh, whatever, however it may be. Now, um, when you get the, re, um, the, the the pictures or the information, um, once it's collected, what do you do with that? How will the CAA determine, uh, you know, what's the worst and what isn't? So the campaign will close on April 21st, and then we'll spend some time taking a look at the roads that we're nominating, doing a, and getting some help, getting a little bit of an assessment as to why those roads were nominated, sort of, the back end is telling us, you know, why people chose it, whether it was congestion or, like I said, lack of uh, cycling and walking infrastructure or the most common reason is potholes and bad road surface. Uh, then, a little bit later after the campaign closes, we will release a top 10 list of worst roads in Ontario as well as the top five from ver- 10 various regions across the province. So for those roads that don't make it to the top of the list, 
we want to make sure that communities and people who are taking to the campaign uh, can feel that their voices have been heard. Then our advocacy kicks in at CAA. I've got an advocacy team um, ready to go. We talk to municipalities. Uh, we also advocate to the provincial and federal levels of uh, government around funding and the needs of municipalities. And we continue to work on trying to get these roads fixed. And uh, are you able to gauge if that information that's provided to a municipality or, or the province does make a difference? Do you think the, the survey does have clout? I do think the survey has clout, and, and, and you know, in our 20-year history, it's pretty amazing to see the results of the campaign, uh, you know, from mayors that come out at launch and try to encourage their uh, communities to get attention to a road. Sometimes it's because they're, they're trying to leverage the, the community's voice in order to uh, obtain funding from the senior levels of government. Uh, we've, we've seen local decision makers come out and announce fixes to roads. In fact, last year, the worst road in the province was in Hamilton, and shortly after we released that top 10 list uh, with that road (laughs) being number one, which wasn't supposed to be fixed for a couple of more years, that that council came out and made a decision to um, get that road fixed starting 2022. And that was Barton Street. That's right, Barton yep. Street East in Hamilton. And Bell Farm Road was on the uh, the regional, the central region, which uh, covers Barrie, Aurelia, Simcoe County in 2021. It was on the radar of the city of Barrie, and that road work did get done 2022. So no Bell Farm Road on, at least in 2023. Exactly. And again, that was a huge project, a $13.8 million overhaul in order to get that project fixed because it included not just the top of the road that people see, but... It included the ditches and stormwater sewers and water mains. So some of these these roads do stay on the list for a few years. It depends on, again, how big that project is, from simple resurfacing to, you know, redesigning, um, you know, planning for growth, or because the infrastructure underneath the road needs to be addressed as well. You know, bad roads can hit people's personal pocketbooks, not just once but twice, once being, you know, they pay their taxes, you know, damage from, from poor roads can cost, you know, pothole damage can cost anywhere from $300 to up to $6,000, depending on the make and model of a car. And in fact, in the most recent survey we did, we found 45% of our uh, members in Ontario actually did get their vehicles damaged from poor road conditions. And 85% are paying out of pocket to fix those repairs versus filing a claim either with their insurance company or their local municipality. So it can be a little bit frustrating, and this is why I think people take to the campaign or should take to the campaign if they haven't ever done so before. And uh, uh, nothing uh, in Barrie, Aurelia, Simcoe County made the top 10 provincially last year, but uh, bringing it home to Central Region, Lackley Street and Aurelia was number one, followed by uh, the following Barrie Streets, Essa, Huronia, Duckworth and Lockhart Road. If people want to join the campaign, um, how do they access the uh, information? Please go to caaworstroads.com and have your voice heard there. And you have until April 21st to do so. Plus, you know, we wanted to make it a little bit enticing for people. We have some, um, you know, contests happening. You can win free gas for a year, uh, as well as some other prizes.
What Barry's Talking About is a weekly podcast featuring the best Barry has to offer and more. Been a busy first year for us. We've learned the Barry Public Library loans out more than books, video games, and DVDs. It also has fishing rods, snowshoes, and more. We talked with an Aurelia girl about her efforts to save the monarch butterfly and found out how shipping containers are being used for transitional housing in Barrie. You can get caught up and make it easy to keep up in the future by subscribing to what Barry's talking about through any podcast distributor. Still to come on what Barry's talking about, the start of our regular monthly feature with Barry Mayor Alex Nuttall. Page's Passion Music Fest is back and... Who should you really be blaming for the high cost of food? Now this. It's cool to care. It's a well-known fact blood transfusion saves lives. It's also a well-known fact that the world relies on voluntary unpaid donations to fill the need for blood. The need for blood never ends. Canadian Blood Services in Barrie is calling on you to help save a life. Please consider donating today. Appointments are mandatory and must be booked in advance. Book today at blood.ca through the Give Blood app or by calling one 2 donate Cool to Care is brought to you by the Peggy Hill Team. Keeping it real all the way to sold. Reach out now at PeggyHill.com. It's Cool to Care with 107.5 Cool FM. This is what Barry's talking about from Barry 360. I'm Dan Blakely. Page's Passion Music Fest returns April 15th for the first time in three years. It's a fundraiser for cancer care at RVH. Our MJ getting the details from local musician and Page's Passion founder, Kat Shabbat. For those who aren't familiar with it, it's got... A really nice story behind it and and how it was founded. Yes, so this event really celebrates the life of a really vibrant and musical um, young girl who is from Barrie, Ontario and lost her life at a very young age, 19 years old, to a rare form of cancer. Uh, She loved music, so we love to really keep her memory alive and just the spirit of community by hosting a rock concert in her honor every year to raise money for the RVH Cancer Care Unit. And is this the first year that it's been able to come back since the pandemic or how did that work? Like how many years did we miss? So it was two years that was missed. Um, It's the seventh annual event, but it has been 10 years since um, since it started. And so um, tell me a little bit about this year's festivities. Um, uh, What kind of special guests can uh, people expect to see? So we're very fortunate because we have a great list of sponsors on board this year and talent. So we have two headliners, Dylan Locke. Um, he performed live on Facebook during the pandemic to raise money for charities. So you've probably seen his driveway concerts on his piano. Amazing yeah. voice. He sounds exactly like Bob Seger. He'll be there. There's a nice dance floor as well. So you'll be able to dance to his tunes. Um, and alongside him, the Barry's Live Music Show creators, uh, the band The straights they'll also be rocking out for the cause and um, they have a great selection of high energy music so it's going to be a lot of fun all of these um funds that go towards it obviously going to some really great causes where where is it going towards um so it's always gone to the rvh cancer care unit what's really nice is that we're going to be backing up 
the RVH Keep Life Wild campaign this year too, since they're really trying to meet their fundraising goal to be able to expand care um, in the Barry Hospital, but also the really exciting announcement of the Innisfil Hospital coming into fruition. Tell me a little bit about the Keeping Life Wild, you said? It's RVH's campaign. It's a rally cry to really get the community together to help fundraise um, for the cause, so the new hospital in Innisfil. And it's really just um, surrounded by the thought of keeping life wild in the sense of being able to keep doing what you love to do, whether it's go outside, be surrounded by nature. In this case, um, we love to promote music because it's healing qualities and also just community and like music helps everybody. Is there a goal, a fundraising goal? Yes, so we have high hopes to raise uh, $15,000. We're really hoping to, to, to reach that goal this year. While the live event is sold out, there will be a live stream. You can register for that and make a donation at pagespassion.gives. And a special thanks to Multitech Audiovisual, which will be broadcasting Pages Passion Music Fest to patients at RVH, as well as to hospices in the region. The budget debated and passed. Barrie City Council has begun discussing the issues affecting the city. Mayor Alex Nuttall agreeing to drop by once a month to give us a play-by-play, if you will, to keep you in the loop. He's with our Ian McLennan. We've just had two budgets in uh, seven days. Uh, Time for everybody to digest. So we'll bring it home close first, Ontario. What is in it that you see that uh, some perks for Barry or maybe not so much? Yeah, I think there was uh, there was quite a lot in the Ontario uh, provincial budget. If I look at it um, holistically, I was happy to see uh, reduction in deficit, um, you know, a fiscally responsible government uh, a budget from the government. Um, and at the same time, there's some investments that I think are going to have a pretty positive effect locally here in terms of homelessness prevention, prevention sorry, and, and housing. Uh, there was a forty percent increase in funding for uh, for homelessness prevention, and you know we expect to see a much higher number than that come to the city of Barrie. And uh, obviously, with some of the issues we're facing downtown and across the city, uh, in terms of homelessness and and uh, in terms of of crime, I think that uh, that's a uh, a very positive piece. In the area of uh, of the budget, and of course, talk about housing. Twenty three thousand new home, or I believe, is what the uh, province has targeted for the city of Barrie. You've already made it very clear with the change to development charges. The city could be shortchanged about is it ninety million over five years or. Yeah, it's uh, somewhere around a, a 10% reduction yeah. uh, through Bill 23. But there's, you know, we still don't have the exact numbers. A lot of it, I think, depends on, uh, first of all, the final regulations of 23. But second of all, uh, it depends on what type of housing where and, and those types of things. So uh, a lot of that will play out over time. Um, you know, it could be a little bit worse than 10%, uh, but it could be better as well. So uh, we have to have to wait and see. And in, in terms of housing as a whole around the city of Barrie, you know, we've got about 13,000 approved units in the queue. There's another 6,000-ish, uh, maybe 7,000 that are going through the process. We've actually had a, a ridiculous amount of, of uh, proposals come in recently. Uh, I would guess that there's somewhere around another four or 5,000 that, uh, that are being considered at the moment. And they're just going through the, the, the first paperwork. So in terms of what the request is from the province for us, I believe that we're going to be well ahead of, uh, of the goals and vision set by the province. 
you've got lots on 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 the plate in terms of you know potential new housing developments and whatever people want to be here. Barry is a place to be here, but can I afford to live here? That I know comes back to you. I'm sure. You know, we see people pushing shopping carts. We know the the need at the food bank continues to grow, but yet there is a an affordable housing project opening uh, in the Tiffin Innisfil area this coming week. How do you balance that? When people say to you, we need more affordable housing, I know you just can't snap your fingers, but what is being done? Yeah, so, so the, uh, the housing on Tiffin and, um, and Innisfil is transitional housing, so it's, it's not necessarily that traditional form of, um, uh, of, of affordable housing where somebody, uh, can't afford their rent, but they're, let's say they're earning money, they're on Ontario Works or whatever it is, uh, you know, they, they, they need that place to live. That's, a, it's a separate project. But in terms of the, around the city, you know, we've had, uh, yesterday I was on a, uh, an hour long call, uh, trying to get one of the local projects moving forward that's designated for affordable housing. It's not easy. Uh, construction costs have gone up significantly. Um, the, the interest rates are, are obviously hurting. Uh, the ability to borrow uh, and repay, and so you know the current situation I think is a little bit uh, a little bit uh, challenging for affordable housing to be built. the The nice part that I see coming is that we've been working with the county, and the county is going to be building affordable housing on Rose Street, and that that is funded. It is uh, going to start, I believe, next year. You know that'll that'll be a, a couple hundred units into the uh, and and that's where the uh, temporary homeless shelter was for the winter, yeah, it's right? The yeah, the former OPP station, yep. and uh, the land was purchased from the province in order to facilitate affordable housing. Uh, there was a, a temporary uh, there was a temporary shelter put there this winter, and um, we helped fund the purchase of all of the all of the uh, capital assets needed in order to facilitate that. Now the county oversees the shelter system, the social services, and what have you, including affordable housing. Would it be more beneficial if the city had more say or control over that? Would that make a difference? Uh, I think for me, uh, I'm passionate about the subject. You know, I, I grew up in, in government housing here. Uh, I've, I've, you know, we went to the food bank when I was a kid. Uh, we, 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 we've accessed the services that are required. Not all of them, you know, but, but we access the services that are required here. And, you know, it doesn't matter what we're doing in government. We need to measure its success. Uh, if you think about... Uh, our rec centers, you know, are they are they meeting the needs of the community? You know, we measure that, right? Uh, our our roads, the potholes, we're measuring that now. Um, the same needs to be done with our social services. We need to measure the effect of the results they're having. If you think about it, you know, there's a certain amount of people that are either uh, without a place to live or unable to afford food and so on and so forth. And then there's a certain amount of funding that's allocated through the city over to the county and throughout the county, quite frankly, to pay for these services. What are the results of the services that are being uh, provided? We, we just don't have that information. And, you know, my belief is that every dollar should be spent trying to help somebody uh, move forward uh, towards housing, towards a sustainable future. It doesn't mean everyone's going to be helped, and we shouldn't set the expectation that absolutely everybody's going to be able to be moved out of that situation. But uh, there needs to be measurables show the positive results that are happening from the $30 million we're sending to the county every year. Now, on a needs basis and quality of life, uh, you and others around the city council table have also focused on youth. You're talking to the school boards about possibly opening up the schools uh, an extended period for to access, um, you know, when the schools aren't operational. Maybe tell us a bit about the, what's being proposed and why it's being done. Yeah, thanks so much for that question. It's a uh, it's actually quite sad that we haven't been doing this prior to today. 
you know, when you think about it, you've got all these assets around the city. You've got, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of schools around the city that sit empty uh, in the evenings and weekends. Uh, some of them are used for sure. You know, I know Barry Royals and others use them, but there's so many gymnasiums and classrooms and theaters and, and, and auditoriums that are sitting empty uh, that could be used for the community benefit. And the province and the school board have recognized that, hey, our schools are they're community hubs. They're not just a place where you go to learn. They're a center for these communities. And so uh, I had approached the school board to uh, see if we could get a deal going in terms of the community being able to access these spaces in underserviced and underprivileged areas. There's, you know, if you think about the city of Barrie, there are places where there aren't rec centers and there are uh, very underprivileged folks that don't have cars, for instance, to be able to, to access uh, either recreation or art services. And uh, so the school board is, has jumped in. Uh, we're really excited to be partnering with them. We're going to come up with a pilot project uh, over the next little while. Our public servants are working hard on this. And, uh, you know, if it goes well, it means that going forward, we can provide more services out in the community uh, than we've traditionally been able to. And finally, round one, OHL playoffs, Barry, Hamilton, how many games, who wins? Careful with your answer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm guessing five games, Barry. That's that's a that's a political bet. <laughs> Thanks very much. Thanks. Food prices are high, but your anger may be aimed in the wrong direction. Sure, it's a price you pay at the checkout that sticks out in your mind, but the food chain is a lengthy one, and everyone in it wants a piece of the pie. As our Will Conkin found out from Sylvain Charlebois, director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Let's start with this. How many hands does our food pass through before it gets to retail? And how many times does, if it does at all, the price of a product rise from farm to manufacturer to grocer and uh, whoever else might be in between? Uh, well, it depends on the vertical, depends on the product, depends on a lot of things. It depends whether or not the product is actually imported. And so, yeah, generally speaking, I mean, the main nodes uh, are... Um, Production, processing, uh, distribution, and retail, and in between, of course, you have transportation, brokering, uh, some agencies, uh, uh, up the food chain, of course, you'll have uh, procurement. Uh, for every company, you basically have a network of companies supplying um, that one company, especially in processing, depending on the ingredients that you, you buy. So. A lot of hands uh, will uh, will be involved in the production, processing, and distribution of food products, generally speaking. Each time it gets handed off, does the price within that change at all or get affected by whoever's hands it's in at that time? Oh, absolutely, yes. And it, again, it depends on the ingredient, depends on the, of the, of the time of year as well. I mean, some ingredients will be more impacted than others. And, uh, yeah, and, of course, the weather is a big one, uh, demand for certain products, labor uh, disputes, um, there's uh, energy costs, there's lots of things going on uh, which could actually impact access and 
and price points for ingredients uh, anywhere across the supply chain. It seems the grocery um, chains are, are bearing the uh, the brunt of the anger over food prices, but uh, it seems like they can't be entirely to blame like we were just kind of describing. Is there some opportunism taking place along the chain, or are the price uh, increases legitimate, not looking to point out fingers, just trying to get a better understanding of what happens from point to point, from farm to table? It's, it is possible. Uh, it is possible, uh, but it's it's always hard to measure greed uh, anywhere across the supply chain. And uh, so, the the grocery business is the easiest one to assess because all numbers are public. Uh, and that's when you look at uh, when you look at financial statements. That's when you realize that the the business. Uh, the grocery business is, is, is a business of, of low margins, incredibly low margins. And so you don't make a whole lot of money selling food, really. And that's why I've always found it fascinating to see so many Canadians believing that grocers are responsible for, for, for higher food inflation, when in actuality, my guess is that if there is abuse, it would be probably up the food chain in some verticals. Uh, meat packing is probably one. Uh, but again, we don't have access to any sort of data there. Uh, I just see a very important um, um, distinction between farm date prices and uh, and prices we see at the grocery store. And many times, uh, both don't make sense. Both together don't make sense. Then uh, maybe linked with that as well, there is the term of uh, shrinkflation. It's been a buzzword lately, but it's been something that's been around for a while. Uh, maybe explain it to us and how it fits in within this roadmap. Yeah, so shrinkflation is basically uh, a strategy uh, that um, food manufacturers will use whenever input in, inputs uh, do cost more. Uh, so they don't want to necessarily lose market share, That so they basically try to uh, reduce quantities and keep the same price. And we saw that in most in most sections of the grocery store, to be honest. Uh, even in, in the fresh section, we're seeing more and more and more uh, cases of, of shrinkflation. The one thing that concerns me about shrinkflation is that sometimes you may actually end up reducing the quantity of a product so much that it becomes a snack, uh, and and that snack may actually be subject to uh, a sales tax when before it wasn't. So, for example, a pack of granola bars, if you have six granola bars in a box, that's not a snack. It's, it's basic groceries. But if you go down to five, that becomes a snack, and then you actually have to pay a tax. And depending on where you are in a country, anywhere between 5 to 15%. So that would add up to uh, the cost of food for anyone. And then uh, maybe connected with that as well, again, uh, an article you released the other day discussed a recent survey that showed that 67% of uh, Canadians found at least one mistake on their grocery receipt in the last year. That, that's quite high. That's absolutely. I think, I mean... A lot of people actually go to a grocery store and they don't require a copy of their receipts. Uh, I think it's a mistake. Every now and then there is a mistake on that receipt. Uh, and you want to actually verify and validate. And, uh, and the, so if you actually do that every time, you can actually save 50 to $75 uh, for the entire year. So it's actually worthwhile for anyone to do that. 
And the survey also shows that grocers are very, very good at accommodating uh, errors. They will compensate you. Uh, there is a scanner code of practice uh, which suggests that if, uh, if you were charged for, uh, for, for a product and the price was not accurate, uh, the, the grocer will owe you that product for free. So I think it's something that, that everyone should actually look at. Yes, that's a good thing to know. And then looking forward for 2023, for the rest of the year, how do you th- uh, see things going? Prices are high, but uh, food inflation seems to be easing a little bit. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, I think that the CPI report today was reassuring. It shows that uh, food inflation is easing. In fact, uh, food inflation dropped 0.7%, which is the, which is the largest drop since April of 2021, and the gap between the food inflation and or inflation and, and food inflation is actually now at 4.5 percent, uh, which is the same as last month. So, my guess is that things are actually going to be looking better. Uh, will food prices drop? No, uh, there is there is a baseline for cost now across the supply chain uh, because of salaries, because of of, of, of packaging costs, transportation costs. So I, I don't believe that food prices will drop. But at least with a food inflation rate of, of about 2%, things are much more predictable and manageable, and we can all have access to more deals as well. Our thanks to Sylvain Charlebois for joining us this week and giving us some food for thought. And that's our program for this week. Thanks to Ian, Will, and MJ for their input, to Matt Ladder for piecing it all together technically, and to you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to What Barry's Talking About, rate it, review it. You can also keep up with What Barry's Talking About on Facebook and Twitter at Barry360 and on our website, Barry360.com. I'm Dan Blakely. Hope you'll join us again next week.